Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. New York City is on the coronavirus watch yet again. The color-coded system was fighting an old war. And as COVID shifted, it became a new war. We'll have more on New Jersey's latest gun laws. It's only unfortunate that it comes during a year where we have had more mass shootings than days. Commentator Mildred Antonor reacts to the U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. How about not taking things for granted and the importance of voting? WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports on how pandemic-related trash collection delays in South Jersey are still creating a stink. And I'll chat with Brooklyn native and one of the newest members of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, promoter Lou DiBella. It's been a long, strange trip. I knew pretty much I didn't want to be a lawyer. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Coronavirus is on the rise again in New York City, and that's prompting city officials to get rid of their COVID alert system. Mayor Eric Adams says the city is working on a new alert system because the previous color-coded one that lets people know when they are at higher risk of getting coronavirus is not effective now. The color-coded system was fighting an old war, and as COVID shifted, it became a new war. So we're not going to hold on to something that's an old weapon. The city's positivity rate has shot up to 14% and numerous neighborhoods are at 20%. Mayor Adams says the city is still in a good, stable place when it comes to the coronavirus. Meanwhile, more monkeypox vaccine doses are coming to New York City. Mayor Adams says the city got about 6,000 doses of the monkeypox vaccine, but all appointments are booked. But he says more are coming soon. We are managing uh, this issue and we're taking it serious. Uh, we are not, you know, just ignoring it. The mayor stresses there is no cause for alarm. Health officials say monkeypox is a non-fatal illness that traditionally spreads through skin-to-skin contact, causing rashes and other complications. There are 119 monkeypox cases in New York City, double the number from a week ago. The city is prioritizing for the vaccine gay and bisexual men and those directly exposed to monkeypox. There are now seven new gun control laws on the books in New Jersey. They include measures that require gun safety training, ban 50 caliber weapons, require gun owners who move from out of state to register their firearms within 60 days, and the state's attorney general will also be allowed to take legal action against gun industry members for public safety and health violations. Governor Phil Murphy held the bill signing ceremony for Package 3.0 in Metuchen earlier this week. They are common sense. They are smart. They live up to our Jersey values. A poll released, I think, just last week proved the overwhelming popularity of these laws among the people of New Jersey. That same poll, by the way, also showed that too many residents, especially parents with school-age kids, live fearful of being the victim of gun violence. The co-director for March for Our Lives New Jersey and Rutgers Jr. Raisa Rubin Stankowitz was also at the ceremony. It's not often that in the gun violence prevention space we get to go to events that are a source of hope. So thank you for that. It's only unfortunate that it comes during a year where we have had more mass shootings than days. That it comes in the aftermath of one of the most devastatingly American tragedies, having a shooting during a July 4th celebration in Highland Park, Illinois. And this happens the same week that nine people were shot in Newark, New Jersey. 
We know that no matter where you are in the country and no matter where you are in the state, you are not immune from the impacts of gun violence. And that is a devastating reality. It is not a reality that, is, that needs to be the case, and that is why I am so grateful to live in a state. And this constantly comes up when I'm speaking with other organizers in March for Our Lives across the country, and just feeling so grateful to live in a state where the governor and the legislature are willing to take action to save lives, to make our communities safer, and to end gun violence in our communities, and to hold the gun industry accountable. Opponents, including many Republican state lawmakers, argue the measures will simply punish law-abiding gun owners and be ignored by criminals, especially because firearms flowing in from out of state are used in most gun crimes here. But it's possible these, along with other New Jersey gun laws, will be challenged in court in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision. This is the third package of gun reforms Governor Murphy and the Democrat-controlled state legislature have enacted since the governor took office in 2018. In a historic and far-reaching decision last month, the U.S. Supreme Court officially reversed Roe v. Wade, declaring that the constitutional right to abortion, upheld for nearly a half-century, no longer exists. WBGO commentator Mildred Antinor wonders what's next. I can't believe it. I can't believe that they actually went through with it. Roe v. Wade has in fact been overturned. I guess when the news officially broke, I was stunned. But to be honest, it was a nagging fear in my mind ever since Obama's choice for the first black female Supreme Court justice was blocked. I remember cringing over what that would mean in the long run. And as Trump began replacing the Supreme Court justices with Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, I remember talking with friends and colleagues about what my concern was regarding Roe v. Wade and that it might be overturned. I was met with, no, that will never happen. Well, my goodness, what happens now? Well, first of all, I can say that I've lost all respect for what we now call the Supreme Court. It seems to me like there's some ulterior agenda to bring us back to the 1800s. Gone are the days of Thurgood Marshall when I looked at SCOTUS with high regard Heck, I just found out last week that SCOTUS members don't even have a code of ethics that they have to abide by. I'm still scratching my head over that one. But that might be another commentary. Anyway, what does this all mean? And I'm sure you've figured out by now that when I ask this question, I'm talking about women of color, specifically marginalized women of color. How will the new law affect them? Now, let's be real. The reality is that women who have the means have always been able to terminate an unwanted pregnancy because they have the resources to travel out of state or out of the country and pay for the procedure and move on with their lives. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody said that getting an abortion is easy. In fact, it is one of the most difficult decisions that a woman will have to make in her life. But it is, in fact, her decision, not mine, not anybody else's. But what about the disregarded women and girls? What about the woman who was raped by a stranger or is a victim of incest or is abused by a foster parent or someone in that family or is a drug addict or is struggling financially and is fighting to support herself, let alone another human being? Or maybe she has other children and is struggling to give her children the very basics and those children are suffering because they don't have the necessities to thrive as they should and they are left behind. No one thinks about them. 
And for the most part, if a woman is alone and struggling, no one is going to help her raise that child or children with her. Raising children requires a village and not having the necessities to raise them often puts these children at a greater risk that can lead to a number of other very serious problems in the future, like various forms of mental illness, drug addiction, alcoholism, criminal activity, and a host of other issues. I often think that those who are staunch pro-lifers see this problem under some sort of illusion. I suppose that when the subject of abortion rights comes up, they think of a young, innocent white woman holding her newborn baby in her arms, and with her is an army of pro-lifers who are waiting attentively to help her raise her child without question and with full support 24-7. I don't even think that I've seen that in a Disney movie, quite honestly. Folks, it's not reality. The reality is that people don't care. How much less do they care if you are an invisible, marginalized woman of color? You know, I shudder to think about the horror stories that we'll hear over the news in the many months to come about women and young girls who have permanently injured themselves or died as a result of botched abortions. I'd rather not dwell on that because I can't do anything about it. But I'd rather focus on what I know for sure, and that is that everything is temporary. What do I mean? Well, I do believe that in the next few years, this law will be overturned again. Why? Well, as Supreme Court justices are replaced and as people are motivated to vote, I think that we'll see it reflected in the political representations across this country. In the meantime, we can ask ourselves, what have we learned as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned? I think that there are many lessons to ponder here. First of all, how about not taking things for granted? and the importance of voting, not just in the presidential elections, but the crucial midterm elections and local elections as well. And most important, the respect for people's personal choices. I'm Mildred Antonor. Mildred Antonor is a professor and the author of The Gladioli Are Invisible, a memoir. Residents across several South Jersey towns are raising a stink over trash. They've experienced collection delays since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. But residents and officials tell WBGO's Kenneth Burns that the problem with one company in particular has worsened in the last several weeks. Before the holiday weekend, Fred Linden in Cherry Hill wheeled his green trash can to the end of the driveway for a pickup on Thursday. Every Thursday, three trucks come down the street, one to pick up the yard waste, one to pick up the recycle, and one to pick up the garbage. But that didn't happen last Thursday. In fact, it was a whole week before his can was finally emptied by Republic Services, the town's trash collection company. Linden says that there have been problems with Republic since the beginning of the pandemic, but this situation has gotten worse in the past few weeks. It's very frustrating and, and very annoying that I'm paying a lot of money in taxes to the township of Cherry Hill, and we're not getting basic services from the township of Cherry Hill that we're paying for. Cherry Hill is not alone. Several townships, including Cinnaminson and Willingboro, have told us that they are having problems with Republic. In Delran, Mayor Gary Catrombone says his township recently signed a new contract with Republic earlier this year. He says Republic was the only company to respond to a proposal request late last year. The township is paying Republic more than $820,000 this year, a 79% increase over their previous deal. Catrombone says the quality of service has gone down considerably since the new contract began. We always had issues with 
the occasional missed the cross street, but it's been whole sections of town, you know, half the pickup for the day because of, uh, you know, variety of reasons that are always going to be addressed as quickly as they can. Republic Services blames its shortcomings on equipment issues and staffing challenges. The company says in a statement that they are, quote, always recruiting and hiring great people. David Bitterman with the Solid Waste Association of North America says Republic is not the only company that continues to deal with labor issues in the industry. First, trash companies had to deal with COVID-related shortages. A substantial portion of the sanitation collection workforce has experienced COVID. And so when there is a rise in COVID cases, solid waste providers are short on labor. Those shortages have gone down as workers have gotten vaccinated. Now the companies are having a hard time attracting workers, just like other industries. Amazon, for example, is offering higher wages to commercial drivers. Bitterman says his group is encouraging Republican others to offer more competitive compensation to retain employees. There is definitely intense competition for workers. Many workers in blue-collar or low-paying industries are reconsidering their work-life balance. Companies are also experiencing equipment issues that Bitterman blames on supply chain issues. That's not only affecting parts for existing fleet vehicles, but new ones that won't be coming anytime soon. I attended the biggest national trade show in the industry called Waste Expo in May. And in May, they were telling me that if you want a new garbage truck right now, you're going to get it in seven to 10 months at the earliest. Towns are scrambling to resolve the issue in the short term and for the future. Cherry Hill and Willingboro have established trash drop-off centers for residents, though that idea was not well received on social media. Fred Linden says Republic called him to apologize for the delays after he reported problems to Cherry Hill Township. I called the mayor's office and I said, why would you have Republic call me? You know, that's not my job to interact with them. That's your job to interact with them. Sympathetic town officials say they understand the obstacles Republic is facing. But Delram Mayor Catron Bone says they have a contract with us that they're obligated to keep up and try to achieve the level of service that they provided in the contract. He and others say all options are on the table. An official in Cherry Hill says the township is planning to take over yard waste collection so Republic can focus on trash and recycling. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns. Last month was quite a busy and memorable one for legendary boxing promoter Lou DiBella. The Brooklyn native and former HBO sports executive not only promoted the undisputed World Light Heavyweight Championship fight in Australia, but he also was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. DiBella had been selected by the Hall's committee back in 2020, but the ceremony didn't take place then because of COVID restrictions. DiBella is also a filmmaker and runs two minor league baseball teams. I had a chance to speak with him on my most recent Sports Jam podcast. Since starting DiBella Entertainment in 2000, a full-service sports and entertainment company, Lou has worked with many world-class fighters, including Bernard Hopkins and most recently George Cambosis Jr. And early in June, the George Cambosis versus Devin Haney undisputed world lightweight championship fight took place. From Marvell Stadium here in Victoria, Australia, this is the contest the world has been waiting for. The fighters are ready. So for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, ladies and gentlemen, 
Let's get ready to rumble! Devin Haney won that fight by unanimous decision. What a month it has been for Lou DiBella. Let's start with the big fight in Australia. What did that mean to you? You know, it's not very often in your career where you promote an event in front of over 40,000 people. Um, and in fact, in my career, it's only the second, that's the second largest crowd I've ever uh, promoted um, for. Um, I did a fight in Argentina with Sergio Martinez. It was in a monsoon and 52,000 people still showed up. Um, he slipped and hurt his ankle in the first round of the fight, but still won. But I'll never forget that night either. But um, look, to be able to promote an event in front of 40,000 people in Australia one week before I was getting inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame, I mean, there was some poetry to that. You know, to have one of the biggest nights of my career right before my induction meant a lot to me. And, and, uh, and I can't even tell you what induction weekend was like. It was, um, it's nice to get your roses when you're still breathing. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know we, we, we don't get a chance that often. Most of us never hear our own eulogies. And um, strangely, getting into a Hall of Fame is, almost gives you that kind of opportunity. I mean, it was nice to get that, that kind of recognition, particularly from the fans who I've had a really good relationship with for over 30 years. I mean, I, I, I understand without them, there is no boxing. Um, and it was really like a celebration of boxing in Canastota, New York. When I was about 10 years old, I had a transistor radio under my pillow to listen to my hero, Muhammad Ali, by Joe Frazier. And uh, getting round-by-round round updates on WINS radio in New York. I never could have imagined being here today. Boxing's been such a tremendous part of my life, and it's created so many opportunities for me. I got to have lunch with Nelson Mandela and talk boxing. I got to play myself in a Rocky movie. I went to 50 countries as a, uh, as a television executive and a boxing promoter. I've gotten to meet some of the most amazing people on the face of the earth, some of the most creative people, kings and, and presidents. And why? Because they were boxing fans. Even casual boxing fans, I would urge them to do that trip once, you know, go to go to induction weekend one time, because it really is, if you're a boxing fan, it's, it's a celebration of the history of the sport, but it's a celebration of the, the, the moment in the sport. It, it's, it's really uh, tens of thousands of fans descend on upstate New York there's a parade of boxing heroes. There's, you know, the people are wandering around the Hall of Fame. There are memorabilia shows. And it's sort of like a three or four day kind of boxing fest. And, you know, the, I, I know that boxing is ingrained in the fabric of this country. It's, it may be a niche sport now, but I've said this time and again, I think our niche is a powerful one. And um, I would urge people to check out the Boxing Hall of Fame if they haven't had the opportunity to do it. So much wonderful history in this sport. And when you think about Lou DiBella and the journey, a Brooklyn native, someone who graduated from Regis High School in New York City and then continued his education at Tufts University before pursuing a doctoral degree at Harvard Law School. And now he's one of the most famous boxing promoters in the world, Boxing Hall of Famer. Does a Hall of Fame kind of announcement make you think about the trip that you've made you know i'm a big grateful dead fan um you know and and it's been a long strange trip you know sometimes the light's all shining on me other times i can barely 
always a method to my madness even like i knew pretty much i didn't want to be a lawyer when i was i was doing radio in in college and i loved doing radio at tufts and and i thought to myself you know maybe i'll do some fm radio for a couple of years and and um i started interviewing during my 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 senior year just to see if there was anything out there for me to do when i graduated and making nineteen thousand dollars a year wasn't of great appeal to me i mean i love radio it just doesn't pay very <laughs> and um, that was like, that was the consideration. I was sitting there saying to myself, okay, what am I going to do? So I, like, I took the LSATs and I took the business boards just to see how I would do because I'm a good standardized test taker. And, and I did really, really well. And then it occurred to me, well, maybe if I go to Harvard Law or Stanford Law or Yale Law, someone will take me seriously with this Brooklyn accent. Because I didn't have any like familial ties to sports or entertainment, and my dad worked for uh, the government, you know, for customs. My mom was a poet and a teacher, so like I didn't have big business contacts and a middle class kid from Brooklyn. So I, I thought, but you know what? If I can get into Harvard Law School, maybe that credential will help me. And and undoubtedly, that credential did help me. Um, I, I worked at a big law firm for a few years, Sullivan and Cromwell for four years where, where I learned how to think like a lawyer, which was very helpful in the boxing business. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be in sports. And, and my agenda was to use the legal job as a launching pad to get into the sports world. And actually, the way I got my job in boxing, my job at HBO, was because I was interviewing for a job in baseball. I was interviewing with the Yankees to be general counsel of the New York Yankees. And the interview was in 1989, and I was in my 20s, my high 20s. And um, I, I was narrowed down to three people for the job, and we were all supposed to go in for a final interview with George Steinbrenner on a Friday afternoon. And I got a call in my apartment that Friday morning from a very sheepish Steinbrenner secretary telling me that George had just looked at my resume, and while he thought it was impressive, he didn't really want to interview a 20-something-year-old kid for the job as chief, chief lawyer to the Yankees. He thought I was too young. So he canceled the interview at the 11th hour. No question I would have taken the job had I gotten it at the, at the time. But I didn't. But the secretary knew that the guy who was going to be offered the job was interviewing for the job as general counsel of HBO Sports. So she said to me, this might help you because obviously you can't take two jobs. But this guy was interviewing for the you know, general counsel position at HBO Sports. And immediately a light went off in my head, HBO Sports, Seth Abraham, boxing, you know, HBO had, had done in the mid 80s. Uh, Hagler Hearns was an HBO fight. You know, HBO was emerging as the powerhouse in televised boxing even at that point so in the late 80s they were at the top of their game and and um i snuck in past the security guard in the hbo building you could still do that 11 years before 9 11 um and i i talked my way into the general counsel's office even though he was ready to hire someone else he sent me up to seth abraham's office 
and we sort of bonded. We were both guys from Brooklyn. We're both big baseball fans. Like baseball was my first love. It was also Seth's. And then we bonded over boxing. And I, and honestly, like I sort of knew boxing was probably my number one sport by then, you know, in the, in the late eighties and the one I followed the most closely. And, and, and I, I pretty much had a, an expertise in the sport at that point that I knew was almost diseased. Like I figured it would, you know, I had to know as much about boxing as most of the people in the HBO building. Anyway, I got, I, I went in on Friday for an interview and I got a job on Monday and that, that changed my life. That opportunity changed my life. So a possible job with the Yankees is one of the reasons why Lou DiBella is in the international boxing hall of fame. Wonderful years with HBO sports and all the wonderful fights that uh, he has been associated with. And not just uh, with HBO, but many other aspects uh, of the boxing world. Anybody who has followed Lou DiBello's career knows that you are a winner, a well-known fixture in the film industry as well, having worked as an executive producer for the film Love Ranch, an associate producer on The Fighter, and you even made an acting debut as... What else? A boxing promoter in Rocky Balboa. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate right. it. No problem. Our pleasure. So you want to hear some stories? What kind of stories? <laughs> well, a lot of people like to hear these old fight stories, you know. Maybe later. Okay. I'm Lou DiBella. This is Elsie Luco. He's Mason Dixon's manager. Like to sit down and join us? Sure. Please. How was that experience for you? I mean, I mean, if, if you're my age, which you know, I'm, I'm around 60, if you're my age... You were, you were influ- two things are certain. You were influenced, if you're in boxing, you were influenced by Muhammad Ali and you were influenced by Rocky Boat. Those two things you can count on. There's no one in my, around my age range who was in boxing that wasn't influenced by the Rocky films. So being able to play a promoter in a Rocky film and then have that promoter named Lou DiBella, I mean, I was able to use my logo and my brand in that film. Um, it was a great opportunity, and I'll always be grateful to to Sly for that opportunity. And um, you know, it's something you'll never, I'll never forget, and it's part of a legacy that uh, that I've left, and and it's pretty cool. The film stuff, uh, you know, I, I've been a player. I mean, I've done a lot of movies, particularly documentaries, a long list of them. I, I never got into film to make money, and frankly, I haven't. You don't make money on documentaries for the most part. Um, but there have been a lot of passion projects and a lot of stuff. I just did a movie that had nothing to do. I executive produced a film um, that, that, that premiered about a year ago. It had nothing to do with boxing. It was about Larry Flint's run for president. And it's really a fine, fine film. Flint for president. Um, great young filmmaker made the film. She's unbelievable. Um, you should check out the movie. It's really about the First Amendment and Larry Flint's fight for the First Amendment. Um, I'm a big proponent of the First Amendment, and uh, I really enjoyed making that movie. Did I make a dollar on the movie? No, um, mm. but that's not why I did it. I can't relate, Lou, because I make so much money as a public radio person. <laughs> uh, I, I can't even imagine not making money on documentaries. But you mentioned you have uh, done some uh, really good documentaries, and you want to check out Lou's list. But uh, Larry Flint for president is indeed worth your eyes. When we're talking about minor league baseball, and my tribute to Lou today is the the defunct Staten Island Yankees hat, the defunct Newark Bears jersey behind me, because it's it's a difficult business, especially these days, to run 
minor league baseball teams, but you got to love, first of all, let's start with the names, the Richmond Flying Squirrels and the Montgomery Biscuits, the AA affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays. Let's go see the Biscuits coming up to bat. The only sound that you will hear are the bats going crack, crack, crack. Biscuits, I want some biscuits. Butter and blue biscuits, playing day and night. I want some biscuits, Montgomery biscuits. They fill me up with hometown pride. I love the nicknames of minor league clubs, and I love their hats, and I got many of them. Well, we, we're uh, we're constantly winning awards as, uh, as being among the best names and best logos in minor league baseball. And um, the Flying Squirrels, I'm wearing a, I'm actually wearing a biscuit. Uh, I mean, there it is. I'm, I'm wearing a biscuit shirt right now. But the Flying Squirrels logo, which looks like sort of like a Marvel superhero flying squirrel, um, went over very well, and and. Uh, and there are a lot of professional athletes nicknamed the squirrel, like Julie, uh, Julian Edelman was nicknamed the squirrel, the flying squirrel uh, on the Patriots. And he wore all our merchandise constantly. <laughs> Jeff McNeil of the Mets is nicknamed the squirrel, the flying squirrel. And he wears our stuff. And, and actually, one thing I've noticed traveling as much as I do, you see a lot of minor league baseball merchandise at airports and around the country. And particularly, I'm happy to say you see our merchandise around um the particularly the squirrels have a huge following and our merchandise is all over the place and monty the biscuit is a cool logo how many how many teams have a buttered biscuit as their logo and the, and the, the biscuits is just a cool name everyone loves the biscuits you can hear the entire conversation with lou debella at wbgo.org slash studios or find sports jam with doug doyle on the npr list of podcasts Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next weekend, Saturday at 5.30, for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.